good morning, church. What a privilege and blessing it is for us to be able to share God's word again this morning. You may want to not only pray for the young people who are out at Camp Caroline, but also for Pastor Grant, who is with them. We hope they will safely return uh, sometime this afternoon. And uh, you may have noticed that our worship team was a little thinner this morning because all the rest of them are out there. Uh, we're just so blessed to have these young people sharing their talents and their passion for the Lord with us uh, in this wonderful way. Uh, it's a real privilege for me to be able to uh, share the Word of God with you this morning. And I was reflecting back uh, this uh, week uh, on, on the, the many, many years that I've had the privilege of being in, in, in the ministry. And... Uh, uh, when I first started ministry almost 60 years ago, uh, I was taught at that time uh, that a good biblical sermon should have seven points. Uh, in fact, I have this little booklet here, and it, it has outlines for uh, seven different types of sermons. All of them have seven points plus three subpoints. It's called True to the Bible Sermon Outline Series. Uh, by Billy Apostolon. I remember I bought that. This was printed in 1960, and I bought that when I first began full-time ministry. Prior to that, I was a, a student pastor for a couple of years in the self-congregation of a larger church, and uh, I, I, I devoured everything I possibly could because back then, I was a relative newcomer to Canada. I had only arrived in Canada in 1954, was saved two weeks later, and so by 1960, uh, I was already preaching full-time. <clears throat> so the, the idea was that every good biblical message should have seven points, and I think it was based on the idea that seven is the number of perfection. I only found that the biblical text did not always divide into seven outlines or seven uh, major points. <clears throat> Well, later in seminary, I was taught, no, actually seven is a little bit much, so every sermon should have three points, plus an interesting introduction and an engaging conclusion. But I found that even that doesn't always fit every text. Uh, in recent years, unfortunately, I've actually uh, also heard that a, a sermon should have at least one point to think about, kind of a takeaway. It's my so what idea. Uh, and uh, that also makes sense. But more recently, I've actually heard some sermons that were totally pointless. <laughs> because they were not based on the Word of God. They were just the preacher's opinions. And so I love to preach from a text that speaks to my heart. Because I am so conscious of the fact that whenever I speak to other people about God's Word, and I point my finger this way, notice there's three fingers pointing right back at me. So if it doesn't touch my heart, why would I expect it to touch any of your hearts? This is the Word of God. It's a powerful Word. It's the inerrant Scripture. And we as a church, Hopwood Baptist Church, uh, in our core values, we actually say that we value God's Word, the Bible, as the foundation and touchstone for all of life. That's the very first core value, and those of you who have joined our church in recent years will have that in your uh, membership manual, and we always point to that because 
everything we do as a church should somehow measure up to the Word of God. And so, uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, walking in the light and the problem of sin. The fact that we do want to walk in the light, of course, First John uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, deal with this issue. Now, how do I live a consistent Christian life when I am totally surrounded and sometimes it feels totally engulfed by the attitudes of the world which are hostile to the truth of God? How do I live that out? And so John at that point had uh, pointed out to us that if we make claims, false claims of relationship to God, but do not walk in the light, do not walk in the truth, then we're actually uh, dishonoring God in that process. And so he, he, he said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, First John 1, 8. And then uh, he countered these false views by saying, but if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And I always like to point out, that includes the stuff we don't even uh, remember or the things we're not even conscious of. Because I doubt whether any of us can walk through a single day without ever in some way offending God or someone else by what we say, by what we do, and towards God even by what we think in our hearts. Because sometimes my attitude is the problem, not the circumstance. But the circumstance just reveals how wrong I can be. Now, today, this passage that we're looking at, that was read for us so beautifully, uh, looks at another aspect of this challenge of how to live a consistent Christian life in the midst of the world in which we live. And John here suggests that there are two simple tests which will help us to know and that word no is very important because it's not guess and hope and, and, and wish, but to know with assurance that we have a right relationship to God through Jesus Christ. That's what this text is all about. And so uh, as we consider that, we recognize in verse 3, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. So, knowing God is linked with the actions and the attitudes that we bring into life by being obedient to God. So that's the obedience factor. And then he says, and this how we know, in verse 5, that we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. So the proof of the pudding the proof positive that we are right with God is that we, our life exemplifies the kind of life that Jesus lived, the kind of attitudes, the kind of actions, the kind of things he did or did not do. So as we consider this text, we're keenly aware that the headlines in our papers and in our newscasts and so on uh, proclaim the sad reality of our political and social scene in Canada and in fact of the whole Western world. And then, and I, I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail because you see it on the news, you read it in the paper, you see it on your uh, Facebook pages every day. Uh, there's dishonesty and poisonous rhetoric on the part of the political leaders and it seems like one is undercutting the other and making sure
sure that the other looks as bad as possible, and then we try to elevate our position by putting somebody else down. That's a common practice these days. Also, frequent of, uh, unfair decisions in the judicial system. Uh, sometimes I wonder when I hear the decisions that come down from the courts, I wonder if the judge would have made the same decision if it would, if it would have been his daughter that was raped, if it would be his relative. But somehow we, we are more lenient on criminals than we are compassionate to the victims of the crime. Uh, general cynicism and imbalance in our democratic system. In fact, it seems like even if there's a difference of, of thousands of votes, uh, we, we demand a recount, okay? And so uh, the assumption always is it's not working. Folks, it's not working. Uh, there's growing opioid crisis with claim, which claims more lives and traffic accidents and heart attacks. It's a, it's a sad situation in our country and, and around the world. And weekly, if not daily, we hear reports of stabbings and shootings even in our beautiful city of Calgary. That's sad. What causes all of that? How did we get here? How did things get so bad? Well, the answer is it happened gradually. Little by little. Let me read a, uh, read a brief uh, excerpt of an article which uh, circulated on the internet a while back. It's actually a few years ago, but I think it's still appropriate because this was in answer to the question of 9-11. You know, how does a good God allow something terrible like this to happen? And it has been reported that Billy Graham's daughter, uh, Anne Graham Watts, was interviewed on the early show, and uh, she was asked the question, how could God let something like this happen? And her response uh, was profound and insightful. In fact, that interview really ever did happen. Uh, she reportedly said, I believe God is deeply saddened by this, just as we are. But for years, we've been telling God to get out of our schools, to get out of our, of our government, and to get out of our lives. And being the gentleman he is, I believe he has calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give us his blessing and protection if we demand that he leave us alone? And then in light of these events, uh, terrorist attacks, school shootings, 9-11 uh, situation, uh, I think it may have started with key Issues like Madeline Murray O'Hare demanding and complaining that she didn't want prayer in our schools. And we said, okay. Incidentally, she was later murdered and her body was found sometime in the past. And then someone said, you better not read the Bible in school. But the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not thy neighbor as yourself. And we said, okay, let's remove the Bible. And then, a long time ago, Dr. Benjamin Spock, who became the, the expert on child rearing, uh, insisted on, on the fact that we, we cannot spank our children because their little personalities would be warped and we might damage their self-esteem. 
And we said, an expert should know what he's talking about. And we said, okay. Incidentally, Dr. Spock's son committed suicide. Some of those experts don't really know if they're not in line with God's plan. That ultimately, when we ask ourselves, how did this happen? It's because we have removed ourselves as a society at large from anything that is holy and righteous and godly. We're living in a world that is everything but godly. I did not personally see that interview, and so I'm not sure if it actually ever happened. But I would say that if it, uh, if it did, uh, this is certainly something to think about. Our challenge is how do we live a consistent Christian life in the midst of a society that has lost its spiritual and moral moorings, uh, adrift in the sea of immorality, mass murder, uh, whether we look at the frequent shootings and stabbings or the wanton killing, killing of unborn, innocent babies that never see the day of life, uh, the life of, of life because they're being killed before they ever are born. And we know that all of that is an abomination to a holy God who does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so the question is, how do we live a consistent Christian life? Well, here are God's provisions. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, clearly God does not want his children to live by the world's standards, to wallow in sin. Therefore, John continues his letter and says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. We're to be counter-cultural. Uh, the rest of the world is bent on sinning. But he says, as children, you need not to sin. I want you not to sin. But then he goes on with the fact that we are in the world but not of the world. But even if we get caught in sin, even if we stumble into sin, he says, Jesus is our advocate. The Greek word here is paraclete. Uh, the, the, the Father uh, has Jesus pleading on our behalf. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father, an advocate, in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. We've been singing about him and, and, and the fact that uh, he is to be lifted up, that we need to come to him when we have sin in our lives. And as far as uh, he is concerned, he is more than just the advocate because Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, verse 2. But how can we know that we actually really know him and have that right relationship? And this is where those two tests come in. The first one is the test of obedience. It's a moral test. Uh, there's convincing evidence here uh, in our lives that we are actually walking with Jesus and in the power of Jesus because our actions speak louder than our words. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. It's as simple as that. That's verse 3. It's all about integrity. It's all about consistency. It's all about uh, congruence between our verbal testimony, what we speak, and our visible behavior, how we act, how we live our lives. 
Many, many moons ago, when I was in Bible school, I was part of the male quartet of one of our favorite songs. You may remember, some of you older people may remember, what you are speaks so loud that the world can't hear what you say. They're looking at your walk, not listening to your talk. They're judging by your actions every day. It's a real bouncy kind of song, and I used to love it. But the reality is, people know us for who they see us to be. And how we deal with people in business, how we do our job, even in the secular world, will make a huge difference in being a testimony on behalf of Jesus Christ. So John reminds us, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands us is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is a person who is self-deceived. We demonstrate obedience by actions, not just nice words. But as we do God's will, we discover that his love is working to complete and to perfect us in our relationship with him. It means keeping short accounts. It means at the end of the day looking back and saying, Lord, uh, where have I gone astray today? What have I done today that was offensive to you or to a brother or sister or someone who's not even a Christian, but I was a poor testimony by my attitude, by my action, by what I said, by how I reacted to the circumstance. It's good to keep short accounts and then to confess it and to ask his forgiveness. And uh, it's a com completing process uh, because basically it's a show and tell kind of thing because a positive response on my part as a believer will lead to perfection and completion. He says, but if anyone does obey God's word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. So you have the inner witness on the basis of a clear conscience before God, which the Holy Spirit reinforces. This is how we know. It is never easy for us to determine whether uh, sometimes these statements, this is how we know, is referring back to what came before or pointing forward to what comes. But the, the point here simply is that uh, it is clear that John insists that true love for God is expressed not in sentimental language, or warm, fuzzy feelings, but it is expressed in obedience. Uh, if my children want to please me as a father, they will obey what I ask them to do. And uh, that was a constant struggle in their early years, and then through their teens it increased. And nowadays, uh, it, it's actually interesting, they think I've learned an awful lot in the last 50 years. <laughs> They actually come for advice now. <laughs> Things they could have had for free way back then and didn't want. Well, that's how it is with us and our Heavenly Father. There's also the compelling example because uh, what he is saying is walk your talk, demonstrate Christ-like behavior. Whoever claims to live in him that is in Christ must walk as Jesus did. So our life demonstrates the same kind of characteristics and being a Christian basically consists in essence in a personal relationship to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, loving Him, obeying Him, living in Him as the branch lives on the vine. Jesus himself talked about it in John chapter 15 and the image of the vine branch relationship speaks about the fact 
that this life that we live is not of ourselves. I'm so conscious of the fact that I personally have absolutely nothing to offer that God didn't give me in the first place. And I'm responsible. One of the verses I've quoted to a number of you over and over when I was asked, Pastor C, are you going to be able to be the interim pastor? Can you handle it? Can you, you know, folks, I'm not feeble. Not yet. Eventually I will be. But not yet. And the promise that I have from God, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Now, if you look at that carefully, what it means is, if I have a challenging day, God is greater, and he's able to help me with that. But the other side is, if I'm not going to use my strength to serve him, why would I expect more strength and energy from him? You see, the vine branch relationship means I'm not doing this in my own strength. I'm doing it as God enables. And until he withdraws that, I have no other plan but to be of service to God in some form or fashion. So this is what he's talking about here. The image of that vine branch relationship, Christ-likeness in character and in deed, comes from him indwelling us, empowering us, allowing us the wonderful, holy privilege of serving him. And so then he goes on, verse uh, 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 3, this is Jesus speaking. Now this is eternal life, that you may know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he defines for us what eternal life is all about. It's not about eternity only. It is qualitative living here on earth and quantitative living for all eternity because if it doesn't last forever, it wasn't eternal life. It, it either is his quality of life in and through us or we really have nothing. And so again, John agrees with that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. There it is again. Now, that's the first test, is the moral test of obedience. The second test is the test of true love. It's a social test. Verses uh, 7 to 11 of this chapter here in 1 uh, John chapter 2. Because he says, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. So it's a command which is old yet new. But he says, uh, which you have had since the beginning, because Jesus had already uh, stated those, those principles in the first place. But he says that the old command is the message that you have heard. That's the gospel. That's the basics of our Christian faith. Yet I'm writing you a new command, uh, which is true. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, as I look around the world today, I don't see that. At least not with natural eyes. It doesn't look like the darkness is passing away. It looks it's getting darker all the time. It looks like things are getting worse and worse and worse. But then I do not see with the eyes of God. 
I do not see Chan uh, Shin pray for the persecuted church. Our brothers and sisters in countries around the world. We're not sitting comfortably in a, in, in a church like this this morning, but who are in many cases living and hiding um, in, in small groups, practicing their faith for with fear that any moment there would be a knock at the door and the door would be broken in and they would be arrested and hauled away. But what we do not see is how many hundreds if not thousands of people are being converted every day because they see the boldness, they see the, the, the faithfulness of Christians and they're being attracted to that because what the world has to offer is so horribly different that they flock to those places, whether that is in China, whether that is over in, in some of the Middle East countries, all over the world. People are being one to Jesus Christ day by day, around the clock. So, when, when he's talking about this commandment, he, he's saying the truth is that the darkness is already passing and there is a limit as to how far God will allow it to go. We need to be praying that we're in tune with him in that regard. But he's saying the light is already shining and people are being one to the light. So let's be clear about one thing. The idea of love in general was certainly not new in the time of Christ or his ministry among his disciples, but Jesus invested it with a uh, new way of looking at love and experiencing love. First of all, Jesus gave new emphasis to love. When, when he brought together the two Old Testament teachings from Deuteronomy 6 and 5 and, and Leviticus 19 and 18 by saying, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was read earlier from the passage in Mark. Um, Jesus didn't invent that. He was just reaching back to an old command that was, that was there, and he reiterated it in his day to his disciples. But secondly, he invested the whole concept of love with a new quality of love, because he taught his disciples not to love others merely as they love themselves, but as they loved God, and as they were being loved by God. And so the whole idea was, it was an unselfish, agape kind of love. In fact, there was no adequate Greek word to express the kind of love that Jesus talked about. And initially, when uh, uh, the uh, trans Bible translators were going back to try to uh, translate those documents, the early documents and manuscripts, uh, they thought that Koine Greek was some kind of a specialized uh, uh, Greek just for Christians, only to discover, no, it was actually the Greek of the marketplace. It was the most contaminated Greek that everybody understood, even in Palestine. Okay? Uh, it's like English around the world. You know, there are certain, certain words and certain concepts that we all share, and then if you go over to uh, like, I, I, I was taught in Germany, I had seven years of English before I came to Canada, but I was, I was taught the, the King's English. And so when I came over here, I had a British accent, even though I was German. And I pronounced words, and I, I would talk about uh, the car having a boot. And I would talk about a, a truck, not as a truck, but a lorry. Because that's what I was taught. And, and you find that English is spoken at all kinds of levels in society in different places 
So when you go to the deep south, you may not even understand their English. Uh, when we were in Germany, the same thing happened. Grace had taken a, a whole winter's evening classes to learn German. And so she had learned to say, Guten Tag, Guten Abend, wie ist Ihnen? And she said all these wonderful things. We got over to Germany, and I come from the southern part of Germany, and nobody talks that way. Uh, when they greet each other, they say, Grüsti, Pürti, uh, which means I'll be busy. That's the song. She said, Why did I bother to learn German? They don't speak German. <laughs> well, the, re the reality is, when Jesus invested the concept of love with this new quality, that the writers had to pick this word agape, which was an old Greek word, but it was not in common usage just to describe the kind of love that God showed to us and the kind of love he wants to allow to flow through our lives into other people's lives. So uh, this was not a special word, it was a word given some new meaning from a Christian perspective. And thirdly, Jesus gave love a new extent, new parameters if you wish, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, because there he taught that we must extend love to all who are indeed, regardless of their social standing. In fact, even if they represent our enemy, we need to love them. In fact, I told one of our congregations many, many years ago when there was a lot of discussion about this subject, I said, you know what, I don't have to like you, but God tells me I must love you. That doesn't make sense, does it? Because we think of love uh, in such a shallow way that, you know, we love ice cream, we love hockey, we love all kinds of stuff. But the truth is that means we have a fondness for certain things. Agape love is God's powerful love working in my heart to the extent that I can love someone even if they choose to be obnoxious toward me, even if they don't receive it well. And so this is a new parameter, a new extent of love that Jesus vested in this. And regardless of who we encounter, as his representatives, if we claim to walk in Christ, we need to demonstrate that in practical ways. Well, Let's come to a conclusion here because uh, he reiterates that whole contest when he says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Verse 9, whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Verse 10, and then verse 11, but whoever hates his brother. Why does he keep talking about if you hate your brother, if you love, if you hate, you don't love? Well, he's saying, you hate your brother, you're in the darkness and walk around in the darkness, you do not even know where you're going because darkness has blinded this individual. And isn't it true that sometimes when we are in an adversarial relationship with someone, we actually fail to see that person as God sees that person. We actually fail to understand what makes that person tick. Uh, we take it personally and, and we want to push back against what we feel from, from their end, rather than saying, Lord, and I literally have had in counseling sessions and confrontational sessions, 
as I was listening to, to somebody just dumping all the stuff that was in them. And I would say, Lord, help me understand. Help me hear this thing. Help me understand how to respond. Lord, what is the proper response to this situation? And so John here helps us to understand that the general principle, uh, both positive and negative, is a stark absolute. Love and hatred are set in opposite to each other without any hint of alternative. It seems like you're either walking in the light or you're walking in darkness. There's no twilight in between. Hatred and anger distort our perspective and blind us to the reality of what really is. But the loving Christian who abides in the light will conduct himself or herself in such a way as to provide no occasion for stumbling to someone else. Uh, and the love that he talks about, agape love, will help us to see straight and to think clearly. Love will allow us to respond to people and to circumstances in a more balanced way. And that is really the wisdom that the Spirit of God allows us to experience. So, again, so what? Why did I even bother preaching about this? It's because as a congregation of God's people, there are many different opinions as to which way we should go forward. We may have many different ideas as to as to how best to, to chart our course for the future. What we need to do is we need to take a step back and say, Lord, what is it you desire for Uncle Baptist Church? What is the best future for this church, not just to please me personally, whether it's worship style, whether it's uh, the times of services, and we're going to make a, a rather important change here in the next couple of weeks by going back to two services. Early service will be earlier than it used to be, 9 o'clock. The second service will be about 15 minutes earlier, and folks, it will be a challenge to get there at 10.45. Okay? But if you want to be part of the service and take in the entire experience, I challenge you to prayerfully make it a commitment. But at both times, we will also have Sunday school classes. And so you can continue to grow uh, whether you do it before you worship or whether you do it after you worship, uh, those options are there. But the reality is we need to ask ourselves, what is my dominant response to life? Is, am I always in a flat? Do I get easily excited and annoyed? Or is it calm and balanced because I'm trying to allow God to speak to my heart first? How can I, how can we consciously and deliberately choose to respond God's way? To all of life's situations. And if there's a challenge for us to accept, why not surrender fully to God's feeling and God's will in this matter? Even now. So our worship team will come and lead us again in time of worship. And as they do that, if you are struggling with an issue, you need to have uh, God's help and you would like to have some prayer and to, uh, be able to be helped with it while we sing the song because we'll stand to do that. Please come forward. Sit anywhere in the front and there are some people here who will meet with you for prayer and by God's grace we'll deal with you.